Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Orange Podcast. This is our very first episode. This is a business podcast that Oliver and I started interviewing founders, investors, trailblazers, anyone that we think is interesting and that we think should be introduced to the wider community. My name is Ben. I'm Oliver. I'm a medical student. Ben, here again, a medical student at the, at the University of Melbourne. And Oliver is a PhD candidate at the Peter McCallum Cancer Center. Together, we have a startup since and we also have this podcast together. Today, we're interviewing Eddie Kowalski. Is that how you pronounce it? Kowalski. Kowalski. Yeah. Uh, Eddie is the founder of Our Voice, uh, a startup that seeks to improve political engagement uh, and civic engagement in, in politics, improve democracy. Uh, it's an honor to, to interview you. So maybe we can get started and, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself what you're doing. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, um, oh, I don't even know where to start, but in terms of, you know, high level, what is this Our Voice platform and project all about? What is it? What are its intentions? Um, it's really all about, as you said, increasing the way, increasing and giving a chance for people to have a say in public policy discussions. But it's also for, um, it's also a way to repair the lack of trust between people and their elected officials. So a lot of research points to a breakdown in that relationship and there have really been very few steps that have been taken to rectify that. Um, if we look at... Yep, sorry, you had a question? No, just yeah, yeah. just curious. In terms yeah. of what you mean by distrust, how is that quantified? Uh, well, through, through research. So you ask a population to what extent they trust their elected government or to what extent they trust um, political parties or to what extent they trust the government as a whole and you're able to track that over time and you can understand how that shifts over time and it's been declining. Absolutely. Okay, so, <laughs> so with, with the company you're yeah. pursuing, yeah. how do you aim to fix the, the decline well, to trust. Yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, exactly how is something to be worked out over time with feedback from people as well, but we can learn very quickly from what businesses do in order to understand their own customers. And so to begin with, there's no reason to go beyond what's being done by commercial players. Um, that is to create feedback forms, to use research, to include every single customer in that research and give everyone a chance to actually express what it is that they found problematic, ideas for improvement, et cetera, et cetera. Something that we don't normally get. So every time you go to a bank or you know any sort of major interaction with one of those organizations or those types of large organizations, you're likely to get a survey at the end. You're, you're going to be invited to provide feedback on that interaction and you're going to be asked for any suggestions on improvements, et cetera, et cetera. Why, to begin with, at a very basic level, why don't we have that mm -hmm. when it comes to a public policy that has been enacted? You know, where is the feedback to justify or support that policy having been created? Mm -hmm. And obviously that um, the lack thereof of utilising these kind of tools and technologies means that people are left out of the picture. And that's part of this sort of problem that we have of a lack of trust in, in our elected governments because there's a breakdown in that transparency. Mm. Yeah. 
What do you think has led to this breakdown? Because I'm aware of some of the studies that you're referring to. Yeah. Trust in institutions, mm-hmm. trust in government is yeah. at an all-time low, yeah. especially in the United States. And yeah. Australia typically follows. Yeah. What has been the main drivers of this lack of trust, in your opinion? Um, well, as far as I can ascertain, especially if we're going to talk about the United States, um, the need for large amounts of fundraising in order to run an electoral campaign means that governments have had to beg, borrow and steal in order to be elected. Um, So that's probably one limiting factor on their ability to then make sure that they are there to continue to represent the people that voted for them rather than the entities that help fund them. So you've got that disparity between a voter and um, how you are able to actually raise the funds you need in order to be elected. Mm-hmm. So I think that's potentially one of the challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could be as well, and I'm hypothesizing here, um, I think you know, to, to really tease this out would be a really interesting research piece that I haven't seen um, having been conducted. Um, but I can sort of have a little, uh, a few hypotheses maybe around around that and that is also that citizens expectations are changing as well so we're as as society progresses we have certain expectations of what we should be offered as citizens Um, the more we use these digital tools in everyday life for banking for other purposes the more the higher expectations are to actually make sure that those tools are being used at all levels of life so Eddie, I have a I have a question for you. <clears throat> yeah. In terms of general trust of the nation to the government, how does that rank compared to other forms of information? And why do you think it is distinct? Uh so what do you mean by other forms of information? For example, media. Ah, you mean institutions. Sure. So uh, government as an institution versus let's say media companies Precisely. versus, you know, Police, uh, teachers, mm. whatever other. So, where does government as an ins- yeah institution yeah. rank on that list, and yep. why do you think it, it ranks as so? Uh, well, I the research that I've seen points to like government is a very big word that contains lots of things. So, we've got government departments, and typically they rank a little higher than. Um, elected officials or significantly higher. Then you've got types of government, local government, federal government, etc. So the more local the, the institution, the higher the trust usually. And the, the, the further away it is, the more it is sort of at a federal level or um, a political level especially, the, less, the lesser that trust. Um, you want me to maybe hypothesize why? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, some of it is to do with that distance, um, which means that, and even more important to use digital tools for inclusion to bridge that gap, let's say from at a federal level, um, as opposed to local government where people might have this feeling that they could walk in the office of their local um, uh, councillor or, or what have you at a local government area. Um, But overall, so, you know, we're talking here, so within government as a whole, there's different layers of government and different institutions within government that vary. But overall, government is not very highly regarded in terms of trust. Like, let's go to United States of America, it's around sort of 21% or something like that, which is terribly low. 
Mm. Um, Based know, on what data in particular? Well, Who collects that data? Uh, it's usually market research agencies that utilize research panels that have been recruited for research purposes, and they tend to be used by all um, you know, whether it's for political polling or commercial purposes, such as feedback for, you know, taste testing on, on, on something or, you know, a brand looking at how it's being perceived in the market. So pretty standard, um, you know, market research panels that are recruited with on and offline methodologies. Most research these days is done online. It's yeah. sort of, you know, there are limitations to every methodology. Telephone is no longer as frequently used because of the challenges with um, people sometimes not having landlines anymore, people not being home. Um, you know, at what time of day are you going to call? You're always going to miss certain types of people. Um, so you have to sort of make sure you call at all times. So there's limitations with every single methodology. But usually now more and more online is the preferred methodology uh, given the spread of digital tools and, you know, how savvy everyone is with using uh, computers, et cetera. I think you touch on an important point, which is even if we put aside the data, anecdotally, I think everyone or, or most people would have the opinion that trust is declining. Like if you speak to most people, they will say that they don't really believe the government as much anymore. They've lost faith in their government. Uh, they, they don't feel like the government acts in their best interests. It's beholden to third parties or special interests or yeah. lobbying or whatnot. And as we said, especially more so true in America. But there's a second problem, which is that public policy no longer reflects the distribution of opinions in society, right? So we used to have a system especially, again, I'm relying on the United States knowledge and data here, but we used to have a system where if public opinion for a particular bill or act was sufficiently high, it would get passed. Whereas now, if you plot the support for a bill against the likelihood that it passes, it's actually a flat line. Regardless of how high support for a bill is, the, the likelihood that that bill passes doesn't change. But if you superimpose on that, the amount of funding and backing that third parties and special interests have put towards a particular resolution being passed, that actually has a linear correlation. Yeah. So if we have these sort of dual problems of trust in institutions and also public policy not reflecting the needs and the opinions of the population, what would an ideal political system be like? How would, how would things need to change to realign those two metrics and improve democracy? Um, I have thought of this a fair bit. Um, I think that rather than, like my, my view on systemic change, <clears throat> whilst there are sort of many levers and we can point to a few being particularly problematic and critical in creating this, um, you know, camp campaign funding, um, and the need to raise a lot of capital um, rather than campaigns being potentially capped at a certain level and paid by the public. In Australia, a large proportion of expenditure on campaigns is actually publicly funded, but there is also the ability to go and raise on top of that. So we are already, as citizens, carrying the, the, the bulk of the costs of running these electoral campaigns. Mm. However, we're still allowing people to skew the balance or allowing special interests who have the ability to 
um, fund and and provide capital to their preferred candidates, we allow that to potentially skew the number of ads that we see, the the quality of those advertisements. And research does show that that has an impact. Um, No one would be spending that level of capital if it did not make an imprint on the population and did not sway them in their decisions. Um, So there is, I guess, um, you know, a lot. So my point that I wanted to make is that I don't believe that um, I want to go too deep on how to fix the system um, and, and what it is that we need to do to improve the representative system of government that we currently have, other than to bring those problems to the population and involve people in that process of understanding the problems, teasing them out and coming up with solutions. So that's my preferred approach rather than one of us being, you know, let's say the surgeons that go in and fix this problem. Um, I would say that a better thing that we could do is to create and improve the processes around these decisions so that people are involved and consulted and then it's up to those people in the community to actually um, either propose changes or veto certain things that the government is doing. One of the things on my mind, Eddie, is Mm. at least in Australian politics, it's mandatory to vote, which is distinct from the US Mm. where it's a choice. How then in Australia, being where you're originating this idea of our voice, do you intend to enable people to participate or incentivize people to participate? Um, you're right. I mean, we, I, um, like whatever we build here is community led and therefore does not carry legal weight. Um, it will not be compulsory to participate in anything that this platform allows people to participate in. Um, and therefore, um, not everyone is going to turn up. Um, now that doesn't mean that their value that their opinion is not valued or that the process is not sound um, in fact most countries don't have compulsory voting Australia is a little bit of an anomaly in having that a lot don't um, I'm not arguing one way or the other on that um, I think that with Australia uh, and the fact that we're here and we're talking about this Australia is a good test ground for new technologies um, new concepts it's a great place to innovate for those reasons and to test out new new ideas um, you know a very sort of um, blue sky uh, objective of this whole endeavor is to experiment test and learn here with the view that whatever we build, whatever we land on as either technologies or processes or a combination of the two would be tools that we could then share with other countries as well and help potentially in that, in, in those, you know, you could call it a market or you could call it a nation, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Because as you say, this, this is a large problem that extends beyond Australian borders. And in fact, One of the troubling things that research also shows is that as a concept, democracy and autocracy are competing for airtime globally within nations as a a form of government. And what we're seeing over the last 10, 15 years is a shift away from democracy and towards autocracy. Can you define the 
the difference between the two? Well, um, I'm not quite the one, the author of those papers, and I haven't looked into it to like the nth degree. Um, in terms of how you define an autocracy versus a democracy. But what I have read is that it's to do with the ability of the media to be free and unbiased, the ability for a viable opposition, um, the fact that you know you might not have a government that interferes and, and locks up the opposition um, because they represent a threat. Um, so I think it's things in that, in, in that sphere. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah well, we've seen it in like Turkey in the Middle East That's right. and, yeah. Yeah. and whatnot. And, and even Eastern you could Europe. argue, yeah, Eastern Europe and yeah. even one would argue Western democracies have tended to prefer more autocratic leaders in recent times. That's right. Yeah. So your solution or, or your idea rests on this belief that if we bring a community of people together that, uh, or, or, or through a technology that allows them to voice their opinions and be actively engaged in the political process, then we can build more trust around government institutions. If we can give better feedback to politicians about the outcomes of their legislation and their policies on the people that, are, that they are supposed to represent, that we can align those two things a little bit better. So what actually is the platform that you're trying to, that you're proposing? Like what, what would it work like? How, how would it look like? Who would be participating? Um, let's start with who would be participating. Anyone and everyone who wishes to be able to have a voice and everyone would be invited. Um, now we may need to decide on some age limits. Um, you know, we can't have minors, things like that. Um, so, you know, there are some constraints, uh, but the idea would be that we're not... The difference between... See, using research, talking to a 1,000 people, you can get a pretty good read, or let's say you go to 2,000 people, you get a pretty good read on what it is and what the sentiment is within the nation. Um, and you can understand pretty quickly um, that, you know, the level of support for a certain policy. Now, that, though, still does not give people, the citizens, the ability to feel that they have been included in the process um, because, by definition, most have not participated. So that would be one distinction from polling, um, and that is that it would be anything done through our voice would be something that would be open to every single Australian to be involved with and and utilise. So that's one of the distinctions. Um, the rest of your questions were around what would the system as a whole look like, What what is the interface that we're discussing here. Now... Um, whilst I think that, you know, and I mentioned at the beginning that there are, that this will need to evolve over time, that there's a whole need for feedback loops to be created and for this to evolve, um, a great place to start is to use the kind of techniques that are used commercially right now. So that's more survey based and that's like feedback based. And so that is a good place to get things moving and that's the sort of where we're at right now and where we want to kick things off from. Now, there is obviously a need to also consider how 
people that might come together to have discussions and to understand the nuances of a particular policy or to brainstorm solutions or to discuss and be informed from others um, about why a certain argument or policy is a good or bad idea. And so having a forum for those kind of open discussions is also, I think, very valuable um, and something that we're working on, but that's a longer time horizon product. Mm. Um, now, in order to, the, the research that we've done and the interviews that um, I've conducted as well, some of these myself, um, point also to a need for transparency. So how do we fix this? We were talking earlier about trust and we were talking about, you know, how do you improve trust and what are the barriers to increasing and improving this relationship between government and the community? Um, and in that space, some of the things that also come up besides being able to actually have a voice and, and provide direct feedback are around transparency and being able to access information and have um accessibility to important information. Um, so potentially another avenue and another way to add value to in, in this space is to have a look at publicly, publicly available data that exists and is pub potentially published by the government but is very inaccessible and to improve the accessibility of that information. So, I, I, for example, um, if you want to contact um, local council members in WA, it's very difficult to be able to find a single database that gives you those contacts in WA. Um, it doesn't exist. You have to Google it and piece it together yourself. So that's potentially a bit of a barrier, a bit of friction that could be improved, and we've done some work to do that. But probably a more important one is around the government budget, so the way that our taxpayer dollars are being spent. Um, we've got a, a very popular governmental initiative is the provision within our tax returns of a report that tells us briefly how our tax contribution is being allocated by the government. And um, this is very popular with, with citizens and I think there's potentially a great um, opportunity to expand on that even to the point of seeking feedback from citizens about the structure of the, the way that the budget is either raised or spent. Firstly, providing the data in a way that is visually comprehensible rather than in CSV files or you know, PDF reports. And having that available over time to be able to understand how things have shifted over time so that any discussions that we as a community have about you know, greater public expenditure in areas like social housing, for example, which is a topic being discussed, or, um, you know, any other area um, can be informed by an understanding of how those trends have shifted over time, potentially, or even to understand how other nations are doing it and what percentage of their budget is being spent on things such as education, for example, mm -hmm. to be able to also learn from best practices that might be overseas. So there is a transparency data layer that I think is also part of this puzzle. Um, and we've started some work on that in order to help alleviate some of that and tabulated some uh, government budget data, um, which we're going to make publicly available 
um, to start that process. And, and hopefully if that is adding value to the community, then we can build on that and continue to add more data from other nations as well and also historically and going back in time. Eddie, I may have raised this to yeah. you as a point of concern in the past, mm. but given your platform is an opt-in service mm. like, to participate, yeah. do you think that you will attract certain characters that are, let's say, on the the border ends of each side of the political sector spectrum? Uh, so that potentially we maybe miss out on the middle yeah, um, because we're getting polar extremes? Yeah, precisely. Um, I... I think that this is something that we're going to have to test and learn. Um, and I think it's easily corrected through greater levels of participation. So those problems that you allude to are probably more problematic if you have a small number of participants. And the, great, the more that you increase the level of participation and you're able to encourage people um, across the board to come in and participate, the, the less that should be an issue. Um, yeah, I don't believe that that is necessarily a huge going to be a huge problem. Um, of course, any change is resisted, and any new system is imperfect. Um, you know, the perfect outcome would be to legislate that everyone has to participate. Let's say because then it, we make sure that everyone participates. Um, but you know, that makes it. Uh, you know, that's just not how things are done commercially, and. We need to sort of always look for the 80-20 rather than seeking perfection. Mm. Um, what we're trying to do here is create systems that add value in addition to the existing systems and frameworks that already exist. We're not talking about doing away with representative government. We're talking about assisting representative government through technology. Mm. A little bit like, you know, an AI co-pilot that makes you more productive rather than taking away your input, potentially. So we're talking about introducing people's voice and allowing elected officials to also get involved in these discussions and seek direct feedback from their constituents. Mm -hmm. And to your point of representativeness of who participates, well, that's problem number two, which is making sure that everyone's invited, um, you know, which is not just a responsibility that we have as the people that make this, um, give this thing a kickstart, but it's also beholden on the elected officials to invite their entire community and make sure that those invitations reach the entire community um, so that we create a space where that two-way dialogue can be really fruitful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just trying to visualise what this would look like. Mm. We already have companies like Twitter and, and X now that essentially allow people to voice their opinions, but these are obviously scaled by impact and how many people like that and what time you spend with that particular tweet rather than uh, the opinions of, of the population on whether they agree or are against. So if, if I'm trying to imagine this, if we have, let's say, like a Twitter-like interface, who is posting uh, polls on trying to gauge the opinions of the population. Who is voting? Who is posting those polls? How do we ensure that uh, the right questions are being asked and they're being presented to the right people? 
Like what, what, what does the whole process look like on that front? Um, this is why I think it's probably best in this process to begin a little more simply than a social platform. And whilst what we've been working on, and you know, we haven't really talked too much about that in this podcast, um, to begin with, you know, my view was exactly what you're referring to, that we, we do need to create a social style platform that allows people to have these meaningful discussions within their communities and to design something that is um, made for and fit for purpose and the purpose being the community coming together and creating and reaching decisions as a group, um, which is very different in its objective to say Twitter or a lot of these social platforms which are really about creating a soapbox for an individual to express to the world what it is that they believe in and then build sort of followers from that potentially. Mm. Um, This is really in essence more about knowledge aggregation, coming together, bringing diverse groups together and co-creating policy options potentially with people in the room, I use the term room loosely, in the space, um, providing and, you know, uh, let's say contributions, positive contributions and perspectives that they bring to the table from their experiences. Um, So I do think that, you know, in terms of creating co-creation of policy proposals that no one's thought of or coming up with ideas and ways of solving challenges Mm. Um, there is you know a need for this kind of space safe online space potentially to i mean it doesn't have to be online it could be done offline but um, you do need to 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 think about those things Um, and and that's one aspect which is more the the sort of co-creation etc Um, To come back to your point around, you know, survey questions, you know, like who owns the pen and, you know, what are the topics that should be discussed or what are the decisions that the whole community should make? Uh, Well, I think on that, again, the community needs to play a role because it's the only way to make this fair. Um, To begin with, it might be that we need to be a bit more active in that and use subject matter experts to look at what it what policy options there might be and test support for those um, but ultimately the this kind of topics and decisions that are being discussed should be affected by people themselves so so let's say oliver and i we mm-hmm. we come together we propose a new piece of legislation mm-hmm. for the australian parliament yep. that essentially mandates the success of our company and if we fail as a company mm-hmm. The government has to bail us out and we get just frequent checks from the government. Exactly. All universities are forced to use us. Mm-hmm. How then do you rank the popularity and the position of that proposal on your platform? Uh, what system would you propose using? Mm-hmm. And how would conversation be facilitated around that? Because I can imagine if ordinary people can propose legislation or propose changes in public policy, then I imagine that there would be uh, an opportunity for some bad actors or even people that are that are serious but just don't have familiarity with, with the political system and what's possible and what's not. They can just create these proposals that the population really likes. You know, for example, let's give everyone you know, $2,000 instead of supporting the military this year. Mm-hmm. So $0 to the military just gets divided between the population. That, I imagine, might actually be a popular proposal. It might get a few likes or many likes if the barrier to entry is tapping a button. 
So how do we make sure that people understand the consequences of what they're voting for? And how do we make sure that we're ranking these proposals in a way that actually improves governance rather than turn it in, turning it into like a, a Lord of the Flies situation? Yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, so to start off with um, your point around how, how do we make sure that... Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm just, I need to drink it, some It was water. a big question. Yeah, it was a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to the nitty gritty. How do we, like Oliver and I make a proposal, how do you rank mm. the position of that proposal? And how do we facilitate discussion around that in a way that improves governance rather than, you know, people just proposing proposals, get a lot of likes, nothing happens because they're stupid. Conversation doesn't happen because people just have different ideas. How do you aggregate those together? so that you don't have many different proposals on many different topics and they will just get lost. Yeah. Like there needs to be things that the entire population votes on totally. in a way that is constructive rather than destructive. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think that to begin with, um, I don't think that right now there is an answer to your question. And I think there's a, a large body of work that has to be done to actually research this space and play with different ways of solving these challenges. But as we move to improving what we have today, we have to look at what are the current mechanisms that we have to achieve what you're referring to. And most of the time, what we have right now, or the closest thing is to create a petition. And that is terribly flawed because it only captures one side of the argument. So you're only capturing support. And if you have enough money to publicize that and take that to enough people, you're going to get your target 100,000 signatures or whatever it is. So that is like a terribly flawed system that we have. And yet that is the, the thing that's still being used, mm. right? So there's a, there's a massive improvement to be made just by creating a petition version two style that allows support and opposition to be captured on any policy option that's being presented. Mm -hmm. So I think just by capturing both sides of an argument, we're already evolving what we've got today and adding a huge improvement to it. Um, what we would then have, and I think now we're talking here about, you know, to what extent is the crowd wise and to what extent, you know, is it potentially going to mislead or, you know, is, is the crowd smart enough to work out that by decreasing or eliminating all military expenditure for the year because we prefer helicopter money and we prefer to get a $2,000 cash giveaway to every citizen um, and, and someone's proposed that as a strategy, um, you know, to what extent is the community going to jump at that because it meets their short-term interests as opposed to the long-term national interests? And this is where I think it's important to make sure that when we create this space that is allowing people to make these proposals, that subject matter experts can add their voices so that it becomes a more informed decision that's being made by the public rather than viewing only the content presented by those proponents of that, um, whatever it is, petition version two or however we might want to call this. So I think those two things are ways in which to calibrate and guard against the issues that you raised. In terms of your point on ranking, how would you then make sure that, you know, like, you've got a hundred or a thousand different 
proposals being created by the public, let's say, for new uh, legislation or new policies to tackle various social or environmental issues. And then we need to have a decision about which ones of these should be supported for a more participatory public vote on whether or not there truly is support for those, let's say, yeah? Um, and how, how would we rank one versus the other? Oh, I think, you know, a terrific space to, to sort of contemplate. I don't think I have an answer, you know, right now. I think it's important to work on what that could be, and I think it's multi-factor. So, you know, it's the level of support and number of arguments that are being made, for example, would be one factor. Another would be what problem is it solving, and to what extent is that a meaningful problem identified by the community? And that adds to that weighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you might have a few other variables that you add into the mix to help you determine which, let's say, um, policy options should be um, taken for, let's say, a, a broad referendum-style public vote. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Look, in the interest of time, I want to I wanna switch gears a little bit okay. and delve into a little bit more of your philosophies and I suppose passions. Out of all the ideas you could have tried to or attempt to solve, why this problem? Mm. Great question. Um, I came to believe that this was the critical problem that we face in our society um, because the way that we as a community come to reach decisions about our collective future is usually done through policy. And the way that that works and to the extent to which that makes, the, makes use of the intellect, experiences, ideas and knowledge of every single person in that community is the extent to which those strategies or conclusions are as wise as possible. So, for example... This year we've got COP28. That means that this conference designed to bring nations together to discuss climate change and other social and environmental issues has been going for 28 years. Yet action on climate change is is below citizen expectations according to the research studies that I've been part of and has been for many, many years. So we need to ask ourselves, well, you know, if we had a well-functioning system of policy creation, how is it that year after year we're falling short on policy creation in this critical space? And the fact that we have had that and we've had it for decades points to a policy creation challenge that we as a society have not solved. And the extent to which we're able to raise ourselves out of this and improve in this is the extent to which we as a species or as a culture are going to be able to wither the challenges that are going to come ahead. Beyond the challenge of climate change, there's going to be challenge after challenge after challenge, whether it's in the area of fighting viruses or um, you know, new technologies, rogue AI, anything in that space, all of these challenges are going to require us to come together and decide as a, as a group how it is that we're go- and what it is that we're going to do about this. 
So I really believe that um, the the key to that improvement in that strategy or in that policy is the combination of bringing together the minds of the entire population. Um, now, you can't scale that, so I'm not talking about direct democracy and I'm not talking about everyone being involved in everything. But certainly there's capacity, you know, we're just having a referendum right now this weekend. Um, we haven't had one for a while. Um, we're not potentially going to have one for a while. There's a great capacity to increase the frequency of these referendums and give people a greater ability to have a say in policy directions. And yet, because of the way that they're being conducted, the cost associated with them, whatever other barriers exist, um, we, we're not doing it very often. And I think there's definitely space for people to participate once a month in some sort of policy decision or direction setting. And it doesn't, it can be direction setting, it can be decision, you know, there's a whole array of things that could be done. And so between uh, what we have today, which is you vote for your elected representatives and pretty much very difficult for you to have a say beyond you having elected them, uh, other than potentially, you know, emailing them. And, you know, the research that I've been part of suggests that people don't really believe that that's eff uh, effective. Mm. Um, so they're reticent to actually reach out to their elected officials. Um, and they don't believe that the letters they receive back to say that, you know, acknowledge that receipt and, that, you know, that they've been heard are actually followed through and anything meaningful really takes place. Um, so, you know, that's what we have today. The other extreme dimension would be direct democracy. You know, everyone's going to now be involved in every decision. Absolute chaos, like it doesn't scale. We all have work to do. We've got jobs. We've got careers. There's, there's room in between to improve feedback loops and learn from best practice as, as practiced in the corporate world and bring those techniques and technologies into the government world or policy setting world. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, you're, you're right in your assessment that politics is important, mm. that the decisions of politicians have impacts on the community and over the long term they can have compounding effects. They can completely change the direction of societies and civilizations. My question to you is more about uh, everyone was, is driven by something. You know, there's some childhood experience or some chip on the shoulder of every person that wants to have impact at scale. Mm. You know, mine is a desire to improve biotech and improve the health span of, of, of humans. Oliver has his own, and they're motivated by things that happen in our childhood and experiences that sort of cement and reinforce these beliefs. What, what is yours? Like, where did this desire to improve democracy come from? Well, you know, um, I, can, I can sort of point back and, you know, uh, say that, like, I grew up in communism, uh, came to Australia after the fall of Ceausescu in Romania. So I had, I've had through my formative years, I guess, exposure to what poor governance looks like and the effect that it has on people, their lives, their futures, their desire to even live there. 
mm-hmm. um, and the importance of having a better function in government and the impact that then that has on the productivity and happiness and ability to grow and expand and reach our potential as individuals, all driven by policy because we're talking here about policy that, ha- that in that country was set by a dictatorship. Um, so I went through that and, you know, probably at a core, you know, you would, I would think and hypothesize that that's probably why it reaches such a deep level of meaning for me mm. um, to work in this space and to find ways to make improvements um, to, to society in this space. Um, so, yeah. So from, from memory, were there, mm. were there any events or trends in particular that you recall from when you were younger mm. living in that environment that you know kind of push you forward on a daily well, basis surely i mean there was trauma idea. there was trauma so you know i didn't i i jumped over it but um, my dad fled romania on his own and my mum and i would you know had no idea about when if and how we would see each other again so, you know, got to live for three, three and a half years of that um, question mark. And, you know, we spoke on the phone once a week or fortnight. Um, but that was all that we were able to do. Um, so that is certainly, you know, a painful experience um, that highlights to you the problems that occur when a government decides that its citizens are its property and they're not allowed to travel, they're not allowed to leave the nation, or you want a passport to go to the West, Yeah, great. Send the application in over here. We'll let you know when it's approved. <laughs> and I, I feel like that that's quite an interesting kind of formality because mm. pe- people in at least Australia are very disconnected from mm. what happened in Europe yeah. and other countries alike mm. or continents. So... Yeah, I think talking on that point, you have obviously acknowledged that you've experienced quite a lot mm-hmm. as a younger individual. I just think it's fascinating yeah. how it affects the future. Mm. Yeah, it makes you, like any trauma, it probably um, over, uh, makes you extra sensitive to noticing its reoccurrence later because you've already been exposed to that particular substance that is that you know has negative consequences Um, and you know we we migrated to australia and you know started a new life in a country that was completely different in the way that it it functioned and ran and very open-minded and very much you know let's embrace everything that this nation stands for over time as you become more entrenched and embedded in that society you may also notice that there are restrictions and limitations there that you become more and more aware of Um, and certainly you know in the policy creation process i worked in government policy research for six odd years and after beginning in in sort of commercial research. Um, I moved across because I believe that, again, policy was the lever through which you could make 
large contributions to the well-being of of, of the community, um, and you know got exposure to policy research, the way it's being conducted, and in the end, you know the challenges that come from the systems that we currently have on determining what it is that we should consider, um, and the the degree to which these are politicised, and you know amazing work that ends up being done over years and years ends up, you know, being put in a filing cabinet or worse because um, a new elected official may be in power with a different agenda and the agenda trumps research or trumps um, any form of long-term analysis of trends, etc., um, which is, you know, an inefficient potentially way of doing things. And, there is, and, and again, it's because these things are happening behind closed doors. So policy research is not an open platform for people to contribute to. Um, most of the time, besides, you know, parliamentary inquiries where people's feedback are formally requested and even then, you know, it's a laborsome process because who's going to spend the time or has it to, to submit um, you know, makes long submissions and present to parliamentary inquiries. You know, typically you only get, I mean, it depends what topic it's on, but um, the one that I've been part of was only a few hundred submissions received and most of them from major corporations. Mm. Um, so, you know, and yet we have the bulk of knowledge, experience, intelligence, creativity resides within the population, not within elected officials, not within paid government uh, employees. Um, it's within the community as a whole. So I think that that's a, a, a treasure trove um, that is not sufficiently being made use of. Mm. And the detriment of all that is all the problems that we see. I mean, we're talking here about the potential benefits to including this knowledge, um, but the, the downside to not doing so is alienation from the political process, apathy, feeling of, feelings of hopelessness, withdrawal from the system, um, complete lack of trust. You know, p politicians in the study that I just looked at recently were the lowest ranked, uh, political parties, sorry, were the lowest ranked institution type measured, um, you know, and yet they are so influential in designing the policies of our nation and yet there's such little trust in them to actually carry or, or make decisions that benefit the public. Um, lots of people believe that, um, that, you know, that public policy decisions are made uh, for the benefit of vested interests, as opposed to the well-being of the nation or the well-being of the citizens, that you know, in prioritising um, action or policy, that what's good for the community is not the number one criteria. Mm. And um, if that's the perception, then that has to be addressed. I'm not saying that's true and I'm not saying it's false. I'm saying that's what Australians believe and that's what's believed in across borders in other democratic nations. And the consequence of allowing this to persist is, I think, partly responsible for what we were talking about earlier, which is the rise of autocracy and the fact that people, when they feel that their government is not listening to them and they give up on the process as a whole, they then turn to outsiders who they want to come in and actually change the system whole completely.
in some super meaningful, usually destructive way. And we've seen that in history and we can bring in historians to you know, remind us of what happened prior to World War II and in other times of history um, when people feel that things are hopeless um, and what they then do in order to get out of that situation. I'm reflecting on a, a book at the moment that I'd previously read maybe a year ago by Alexander, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago, talking about his experience being imprisoned in kind of the communist war camps during the Soviet Union. And despite the arduous and atrocities that he's experienced in his life, he ends the book claiming to be grateful to some degree because the experience allowed him to understand and realize what he was on this earth for. Hmm. And he became grateful because of the experiences that he went through. Can you reflect on that in any way? Well, there's that other amazing book, Man's Search for Meaning, um, which I guess ties into a bit of this. And we could argue that that negative experience provided a very deep and profound level of meaning for for Solzhenitsyn, hmm. maybe. Um, and that we are looking for those experiences or, you know, life is about finding one's meaning and choosing, uh, you know, a, a battle or a set of battles that uh, resonate really deeply. And um, so, yeah, makes some sense. Interesting. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, to find, to find a problem <clears throat> worth fighting for mm. and to find meaning and gratefulness despite the suffering. I think that's something that all of us have to some extent. Everyone that's involved in a business, which is usually pure suffering most of the time, yeah. uh, enjoys it to some extent and finds meaning in it because it's important. I think I want to come back to something that I've been thinking about, which is like, what is there a fear that, that motivates you? That if you don't act on this, that if we don't, tap into, as you say, that this treasure trove of public opinion and knowledge and creativity, that something is going to happen to our society that isn't going to be good. Is, is that something that motivates you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what are you worried about? What do you think will happen if, if we don't act, if we continue on this trajectory? Well, for many reasons, I think we're, we are going to face challenges that we could have otherwise averted and we're going to have to face larger than otherwise um, would-be costs. Um, the planet's going to be here. It's whether or not it will be habitable by us as a species, um, no matter what we do to climate as a species or, or what have you. Um, so we may have an impact in biodiversity and the you know life as a whole on the planet, um, but really we're also going to be the ones that have to pay the price and future generations are going to be affected by that. So many people in research talk about the politicians no longer thinking long-term, um, having lost the perspective of thinking for the future, planning only for the short-term electoral cycle. Um, businesses also follow the next quarter if they're a publicly listed company. Very difficult to think 20 years out, 30 years out. Um, discounted cash flow means that 
a dollar in 30 years is worth very little and therefore provides the organization with a very low level of incentive. So these are macro motivators or levers that are operating right now leading to certain outcomes and certain prioritizations and they are all about short-termism and you know this is this is huge because if that is if as a species i mean with you're a cancer researcher yeah that's correct so you know we can make some analogies here to that um you know what happens when you have a system that is only looking at short-term and short-term selfish um, Mm. benefit um that it destroys the host yeah ends up leading to the demise of the system itself exactly and i think that we potentially are in danger of that as a society now and Therefore, it's super important to take steps to address the systemic reasons why these problems are occurring. And this is bringing back to earlier, you know, which is why I think that the solution is not to figure out what few policies we need to change. I think we need to figure out how we reach any policy and to change that because that will, if we, if we get that right, that will continue to provide dividends time after time across different policy domains rather than being a solution for one problem, like even if we solve climate change tomorrow, like if I could choose to solve two problems, the way that we govern ourselves and, the, and climate change, and I could, like let's say, and we, we had the ability within a year to solve one of those two, I would choose this one. I would choose the way that we come together to decide, even if that meant that we would not yet have time to do anything about climate change, I would have faith in the fact that we've built the system that would then provide that over time, mm. which is better than us coming in as a saviour of one issue absolutely, and then leaving the door open to all the other problems. That's an interesting ethos. I think on that note, uh, I'll ask you one final question, which is, if you had a chance to address humanity Mm. at a pivotal moment, what would you say? What would be your message of hope? You You are the ones we've been waiting for. That don't look for saviors and don't look for people to be experts and to tell you how to solve these things. Become part of the answer and contribute your views. And that is the method by which to, to actually tackle these problems. Brilliant. <laughs> Great. On that note, We're, we will wrap up this episode of the podcast. Like we said, first episode, it was a good run. Very entertaining, very interesting. Lovely to meet with you, Eddie. It's been the Orange Podcast. I'm your co-host, Oliver. And I'm Ben. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, guys. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Eddie. Now, we talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship, but to build the future, you need people and a place to build from. Discover the perfect workspace for collaboration and productivity. Melbourne Connects Coworking is offering our viewers an exclusive 25% discount on 12-month memberships. Quote Orange when you submit your inquiry. Links are available in the description now.